המאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל המאה ה-2-3 מרגישים קיץ באוויר. רדיו קול רמה, מאה ה-2.3 FM. Hello and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malam in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation. I'm Shaman and joining me my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Shekhtar Day School in Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Andrzej Chesed, New York City. We are recording this for the last Shabbat of the season, the last Shabbat in Machaneinu, Machane Raman the Berkshires, on 102.3 Kol Ramah where you can get this, the best Parsha podcast in Dutchess County. The best Parsha show for, I don't know, is it 10 years straight now? We have been, we've been, we voted ourselves the best Parsha show for 10 years running. Unanimously. Unanimously. Because there's just so much Torah here. There's so much Torah here. Before we begin, just thank you to people who are watching us, listening to us. We're really, really touched. We're honored that you do that. You spend about a half an hour every week with us, either preparing your Shabbos dinner or folding your clothes, doing your laundry, or doing everything else as we are in the background. And to all our friends at Ramah, thank you for watching. And to Mitch Mernick, special shout out. Thank you for producing us and for uploading us on the website and everything. This week's Parsha Re'eh. It starts with Re'e, which is a which I don't want to say is unusual for Dvarim, but Dvarim is about Shema also, right? Listen, so this is the first time we have, or not the first time, but it's right right in front of us. Look, look, look at the blessing, look at the curse, right? It it kind of sets us up for the theme of choosing and uh, what kinds of choices we're going to make in the land and how we're going to live in the land, and we're going to talk about that. In, in, in particular, we have to, to note that this is like, you know, the, the rhetoric, the literary beauty of Deuteronomy is really spectacular. But one of the key things is it begins, like this, this is open parentheses. Yeah. I place before you blessing and curse. And then at the very, very, very end of Deuteronomy, this is going to be the close parentheses. That phrase is going to get repeated. I place before you blessing and curse, good and bad, life and death. Therefore... Choose life. Choose life, man. Choose life. Choose life. So and all this, all the intervening material, all the legal material in Deuteronomy is therefore in this context of you always have an existential choice to make about what kind of life you want to live, virtue, kindness, justice, or exploitation and cruelty and all the opposites. Right. And we can push it a little bit more because up until now, we could forget that the substance of Deuteronomy is law. And this is going to begin the lengthy central legal portion of Deuteronomy, which sometimes will supplement or augment and sometimes contradict or modify the laws that we've previously seen in the earlier books. Well, that's a good segue to get into chapter 12 of this parsha. So 
we get once again this theme that you are going to go into the land and that the land living in the land is going to you know of necessity require some kind of legislation you're going to need rules you're going to need statutes you need a whole system of law uh and um uh let, let's just take the, the 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 first set of mitzvot here because you're coming into the land and um unlike the mythology that may have developed in Judaism about the Israelites coming into the land there, there are people there. there there are a lot of people there a lot of different people there and they have their own forms of worship there uh and uh the Torah is uh, ruthless uh we're just going to put it out there honestly abed tabdun et kolamikomot you shall destroy all the places where the nations that you're dispossessing worship their gods there high mountains hills under every lush tree shall demolish their altars shatter their pillars burn their asherahs in fire cut down the statues of their gods in fire and destroy their name from that place Boom. So, so um, you know, it's interesting. We, we've all been to different museums, the Israel Museum, and the, there's a museum, the nice museum, also in the in that uh, vicinity, the, the Museum of Biblical History. You know, yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, the Bible Museum. Museum. Yeah, it's a great so, museum. So, it's a great museum. Why? Because our ancestors <laughs> did not succeed. <laughs> <laughs> They did not succeed in destroying all the gods because you have little statuettes and little figurines and all sorts of things that they worshipped or that they, that they, I, you know, they they revered or they they placed on pedestals. Etc. So, go ahead. It, it makes one wonder then what the tone is here. We've all had the experience where someone, perhaps a beloved parent, says in response to something that we may have done, "I'm going to kill you." And most of the time, they don't mean that literally. It's to give a certain tone to whatever it was that we've done. And it may be, perhaps, that Deuteronomy is just, it's an attempt to suggest how terrible these things are, but that it's aspiration rather than inspiration. Not to lead us to the behavior, it's to suggest that we have to be careful. All right, but but the, these rules do leave uh, a strong residue and influence on later Judaism. There's a whole masechet, masechet avodah right? You, what do you do when you see uh, an idol? You're supposed to grind it up and send it to Yamamelach, you know? Although, although, you know, one of the interesting things, is a fam- there's a famous um, episode about Rabban Gamliel uh, who goes into the bathhouse. Uh, where does this take place? And Sephiroth or Tiberius or it says Caesarea, wherever it is, he goes into the bathhouse and it's Aphrodite's bathhouse and there's a statue of Aphrodite there, and and this, they say to him, Rabban Gamliel, how can you enter this place with manifest idolatry? And he says, Well, she came into my house, I didn't come into her house, which seems to mean something like it was already a bathhouse and somebody put a statue in it. And that's not going to invalidate the the quality of the bathhouse but i would generally sort of read that is that greco rome you know rabbis in the you know rabbinic period like let's call it the first you know honor about the year zero and into the first and second century living in a greco-roman palestine they made their peace with the different culture um which which is i think a good 
moderate Jewish kind of existence. But it's also true that perhaps the most famous, like one of the five or ten most famous pieces of rabbinic literature is the story that Abraham was so great because he broke all the idols. And, you know, that we, I think American liberal Jews often look at that story and say, aha, Abraham was an iconoclastic kind of guy. He, he punctured the society's hypocrisy. Um, well, I think probably lots of Jews read it over time to mean, yeah, he smashed the idolatrous shrines. And isn't that really the way to be? You know, I teach that story. One second, I teach that story. And, and I say it's, it's a story that we waste on children. Because it's such a sophisticated story True. about, about the, the whole nature of idolatry, which is, if you're the, the scene I point, there are two things I point to in that story, which is the, 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 um, the, the, when, when Abraham is no good at doing anything, they say, oh, make him, make him into a priest. I love that line. <laughs> the second thing I love in that story is that when everybody comes in, they say, well, make me an idol or sell me an idol just like me. Like the old woman comes in, she wants an old woman. The strong person comes in, wants a strong man. The, and and so it's the rabbi saying, what is idolatry? Idolatry is just a different form of narcissism. It's all, all idol worship is self-worship. And, and in the self-worship, they see that as the ultimate evil. Look, I mean, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna set Jeremy up here for a good a good slam here, but uh, wouldn't the evils of our day be uh, narcissism gone wild in certain leaders? I mean, <laughs> you know, and 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 you see you see what happens. What you know, how that I mean that is lethal. That can be lethal to a society. So so in a way, you know, while I, while I want to agree with Barry and say, of course, this is aspirational, and nobody, you know, the the, the evidence is still in front of us. We still see the the remnants of all these things. Um, but they understood that there's something quite um, dangerous and lethal. I would say, by the way, just the, I totally agree with you about that story from Brashid Rabba, the enormous sophistication of that story. To me, the top element in that story about Abraham smashing the idols is that when he, when he you know, ridicules them, he, he destroys all the idols and puts the stick in the hand of the biggest idol, sure. which, which seems like an incredibly sly, incredibly sophisticated, thoughtful comment about how worship of Hashem can also be idolatrous, right? You can make you can make Hashem into just the biggest idol of them all. Right. That that is to say, if you miss miss the point, right? And 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 we. I, I would say we all have this, we human beings have this tendency to venerate power. At the root of idolatry is the veneration of power and the awe of power and the inability to hold power to, an, to account. What the, the genius of monotheism is to say, no one person has more power over another because we're all subservient to the one eternal power. I feel very strongly that this is true. And, and while, you know, modern people... Um, have have sometimes, you know, a number of modern thinkers have, have offered the view that paganism is inherently pluralistic. You don't have to be the, the one god of all things. You can have this god for that, that god for this, the other god for the third thing. And so you don't have, there's no danger of pagans ever being Taliban. 
You know, there's no danger of pagans ever being intolerant fanatics who have to root out the opposite. And so I, I do think it's a fair point that a, that a pasuk like this, of to burn all their, you know, destroy all their pillars and destroy all their altars and burn all their burn all their sacred trees and and cut down all of their their you know venerated objects. I think it's a risk to become an intolerant fanatic. I mean, when the state was founded, like our listeners may or may not know that throughout the history of halakha, because Islam was so rigorously monotheistic and no idols, Jews have generally felt that Islam is not right, but it's not avodazara. Uh, it's not idolatry. Christianity, Jews who lived in Christendom, made their peace with it and said, it's also not idolatry. It comes out of the Hebrew Bible, and, and we don't really like the, the statues of Otoha'ish, that man, but it's not. But Jews in Islam basically thought it was straight-up idolatry. Jews who lived in, in Egypt or Morocco or, or Iraq thought Christians were total idol, idol worshippers. And then when the state came, Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi Herzog, the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi, um, the grandfather of the current president, took the bull by the horns or the cross by the corners and said, following the views of, of certain medieval authorities, most especially the 14th century Menachem HaMeiri from Provence, it is it is ethical monotheism, and I don't like the I don't like the statues, but we're not destroying the churches. And thank heavens he did. You know, I mean, this is this is a, an item of current debate in Israel. There's lots of vandalism and violence against Christians in in Israel. It's it's abhorrent, it's shameful, um, and and it's going to lead to you know more and more internal strife in Israel. In addition to all the internal strife that that is and, you know albeit in a corner of Israeli society but it you know let's just say this this do this doesn't help anything at this point this you know these these harassing Christians in the old city vandalism of Christian holy sites it's it's obscene it's horrible it's disgusting and and it's certainly not what the Bible is talking about here and that's your point the point is you know let them let them you know this is this is monotheism. We'll let them be in the land and let them let them worship here. We're, we're we cannot read the Bible as a moral guidebook for this political behavior today, which is a unmediated by two thousand years of tradition or more. Right? How do you react to that, Barry? So I would draw us back to the original distinction between monotheism and idolatry. God is portrayed in Devarim and elsewhere as a jealous God, an exclusive God, one who demands one's complete allegiance. And so idolatry cannot be tolerated in that. And the question that we don't always think about is what exactly is the danger of idolatry? And can monotheism really coexist with pagan religion? Or must pagan religion be, if not destroyed, at least put aside or properly circumscribed, neutralized, shall we say, so it doesn't pose a threat to monotheism. No, I, I, um, I, a bunch of years ago, I had a um, sort of a series here at the synagogue. We went to mosque, we went to a Buddhist uh, temple. temple or whatever it's called here in the neighborhood. We went to a Sikh temple uh, and a Hindu temple. And the Sikh were really interesting, but S-I-K-H 
we always say Sikhs, that sounds nice. In English, Sikh sounds bad, but Sikh is actually how they pronounce it. Um, That's so, Sikh. No, no, they don't say Sikh like it's a Hebrew word. Sikh. It's it's really sick. Um, and anyway, these are all so fascinating. Um, the sick people, by the way, they have, this was the one of the coolest things. They have enormous veneration for their scriptures. So they, they put their scriptures in a special bed. They take it out. They wave feathers over the scriptures. And I, it, of course, it's very different from the way we treat the Torah, but it's totally exactly the same the way we treat a Torah scroll is the veneration of the object. But the Hindus, man, I mean, there's lots of people kissing statues and, and giving statues gifts. And well, of course, they, yeah. they don't, the, the, the practitioners say, no, 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 I don't think that this physical object is the God, but it is an orient, it orients the worshiper towards God. And, but I must say that as a person watching that, um, it was, it was hard to get my mind around watching people kiss these statues. You kiss the Torah? Do you kiss the Torah? Do you kiss your I, do, I do kiss the Torah. I don't. I mean, I do, but I don't. I don't I don't rigorously kiss them. I always, like, I'm aware... Well, you know, French kiss the Torah. <laughs> I'm aware that when I place my tzitzit on, I, this is where I'm going in my head. I, I'm going to... I'm signing on. This is my act of affirmation that what's in there is in me or i want to bring it into me so and that's my on the same line so do you kiss the mezuzah no i don't kiss the mezuzah and what about your cc when you say shma no i don't you don't kiss your tefillin when you that <laughs> that you do i do you know what? that's so interesting so one can say that the tefillin is actually closest to the torah the tefillin right because it has Passages of so, the so, so here, it. this is my own religious anthropology, which is I have a sentimentality towards my tefillin. You know, <laughs> so I don't. I, 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 I'm so cognizant of the of being, you know, present in in. But I have the. It's a, you know, a habit. You know, when when I put on tefillin, I love tefillin. I put it on. I love the tefillin more than <laughs> whatever. All of these. So you are, put your tefillin on cholamoid. I do. Oh no! Yeah, 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 I do. I'll, I'll tell I you why. Too. I'll tell you why. For that same reason, because I like wearing tefillin. I like wearing tefillin. I also, I, I also love wearing tefillin, but I do not put on a tefillin, and that's that's at least partly my my cabalism. It was really important to the Kabbalists not to put on tefillin on tefillin. Right, but the oh. difference is, Jeremy. I don't know about the Kabbalists that we're talking about here, but my guess is you go to work on tefillin. So it's not really I'm going to about Shabbos. That's what it means to be a public rabbi. Well, that's a little bit different. <laughs> you don't go to your I, office. The, on the reason why I put uh, put filling on cholamoid is because I cholamoid is more chol than moid, and and I I feel you know in a sense because of the, the a sense of affinity towards the mitzvah tefillin. I I can't I, I can't bring myself. It's it's interesting, you know. Israelis, and when you're in Israel, it's like it's a whole different ballgame with regard. Well, to that's because, but that's because. I mean, at least partly because of the reason that I said it, it, it is Minhagar Yisrael, but it's under the enormous influence of the Shulchan Aruch of Yosef Karo, who, because of his capitalism, went to town on not wearing tefillin on Kol Hamoed. So, so a good digression there. So let's let's go to chapter fourteen. Right, let me just say one quick thing, real quick, uh, on this last point. The um, 
the Bible says, you know, you destroy, destroy, destroy all these all these altars. You know, they worship them on on you know on top of every hill and beneath every leafy tree. Don't do this to the Lord your God. And the simple shot is very obviously, don't worship Hashem the way these people worship their false gods. Don't have the idols. Don't have the, don't have the sacred posts. Don't have these many, you know, hills and leafy trees. But we read it differently. We read it, don't destroy, destroy, destroy those names of those gods. Don't do that to the Lord your God. That's where you get the law that you can't destroy the written name of God. Um, it is a, it's a misinterpretation of the simple semantic meaning of the verse, but it's a beautiful one, and it goes to exactly what we're talking about now, which is that we do think that certain objects, a Sefer Torah, Tefillin, a Mezuzah, they do represent the name of God. And so it has to be, it's, it's, it's a, almost a little bit vulnerable, that name, and you could destroy it, so you must not. So, so do you delete files on your computer with Hashem's name on it? Uh, the, the real the real hard thing would be to to turn off the screen uh, because the, the files on the computers are just ones and zeros, but the screen is like a visual representation. Of course, you have to; you cannot do otherwise. Yeah, it's impossible. Um, and it's so, impossible. therefore, you you kind of you we all do a kind of mental calisthenic, which is that the visual depiction of God's name and in, in in on an, on on a screen is a temporary manifestation of God, and it's not. The name of god so to speak right but i think the original law had to do with print because print was conceived as being permanent right which and even now, a computer you know, screen is not there's a, there's right? a, once there's the electricity a, stops the screen disappears there's a series of chuvat about about photocopies and non you know what what kinds of things you bury etc okay so now let's go to banin banim atem lehechem, chapter 14 Verse 1, you are children to the Lord your God. Lotit godadu. Lotit godadu. Which which means cut yourself. But we also it also means, well, the Midrashic uh interpretation, Lotasu Agudot Agudot. Don't 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 divide yourself up into into, into subunits. Jeremy, you want to take that for a second? Yeah, this is a this is a um uh, it, it, making that midrashic maneuver that you just described, um, don't make yourself into all little sub-factions. You have to uh, have a sense of yourself as part of this great big Am Yisrael Jewish people, and you have a sense of unity. Um, and this is a very poignant uh, mitzvah right now because of the enormous disunity, you know, in, in, in Israel, certainly between left and right, uh, adherents of the government or opponents of the right government. Wrong. Um, it's just there, there is an abyss among society and a real scar in society. Um, and we feel, I mean, obviously, the American citizenry is not obliged to the mitzvah of Loti to go to do, but we also feel the same in the United States. I mean, uh, there are those. So I want to ask you this question, just and we didn't talk about this, but. Do you think Jews are prone to factionalization, factionalism, to to making themselves in? I was I was listening to, um, you know, there was a YouTube with Jonathan Sachs, you know, he talked about, it, it, there was, he was talking with a, a Sephardic rabbi in, in England, and 
he said to the Sephardic rabbi, don't go down the same path that we Ashkenazi Jews went down. You know, when reform came to, to Germany, it, it there were factions that, you know, the reformers, there were the anti-reformers, and they're the the, the proto-conservatives, the historical, you know, school, etc. And and that didn't go take place in the Sephardic world. I wasn't sure exactly how to respond to that, given that here I am, I'm a conservative Jew, so I'm inheriting the factionalism that developed in the 19th century in Germany, and 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 the three of us, you know, are are proponents of that, and and we live with we live with agudot agudot in Judaism. I would say I, this is, that's really very much on point. Um, I read a, a a fine book by the scholar Tzvi Zohar about the. Uh, about the North African and and in Iraq and Syria and and North African and Eretz Israel Sephardi rabbis in the late nineteenth early twentieth and one of the points he makes is that the you know that that there was uh, they didn't feel the need to uh, reject modernity the way Orthodox rabbis felt the need in in Germany and Eastern Europe to reject modernity and that worsened the factionalization in Europe and and and. Um, just lowered the temperature in the Islamic world. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a very very hard problem because on the one hand, I do think that unity and a feeling of togetherness and a feeling of Am Yisrael membership is absolutely essential to being a Jew at any time, but certainly in the modern times. And I also feel that that you 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 run the risk of of kind of like. Uh, uh, forcing uh, an enforced homogeneity. If you tell people like your deeply held beliefs, you shouldn't you shouldn't hold them because you shouldn't insist on them because exactly. because then you're gonna you know gonna make society you know gonna make society uh, too too fa- factionalized. I mean, I'll say this in one way. I, I don't know who said this, but I've heard it many times and I've repeated it even more times than I've heard it. I've repeated it, which is that um, that you know. Uh, liberal Judaism, like our own, has succeeded in Protestant countries and not in Catholic countries. So Protestant countries, Germany, you know, England, the United States, Canada, you, you have a church and you don't really like the church, you can start your own church. You don't want to be a Methodist, you can be a Presbyterian. You don't want to be, you don't want to be an Episcopalian, you can be, you can be a Lutheran. Um, in Catholic churches, in Catholic countries, it ain't that way, you know, so much. You, you're, you're, you're going to be Catholic if you live in Poland. You're going to be in, uh, you know, Russian Orthodox if you if you live in Russia. And so, when societies have a kind of established church, dissenters are are kind of marginalized. We are Protestant Jews. We think that people who hold deeply, you know, deeply held views about the Judaism that they want to practice should be encouraged to pr- practice that way and not, you know, homogenized away. Right, but Solomon Schechter's famous phrase was Catholic Israel because he thought the model was the Catholic Church. And He didn't, live, think, he didn't live through Vatican II. <laughs> he did not. Um, I think perhaps part of the issue here, though, is that we don't always see ourselves as part of a larger group. That may be the the bane of liberal Judaism, um, but that's where factions come in and where factions can become dangerous because we all know that the, the basic model of society is a family and no one thinks that there's any great meaning to being one great family. We're individual families and that's a good thing. 
as long as we recognize that we're part of something larger, that also is important. And I think that you know what this verse speaks to, we didn't get to the follow, the concluding part of the verse is that God has chosen us to be holy, created us to be his treasured people. So the Jews have to be a part, a group, a faction, as it were, in terms of larger society in order to preserve their Jewishness. But the Jews themselves can't break into little groups. So, That's so where the danger is. As we're talking about this, I'm trying to imagine what the ideal what the ideal shul is, or the ideal community is, what the ideal structure. I thought yours was the ideal. Shul. I know. It, well, it is. You know, in addition to the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chamet. You know, so so look. You know, and we are speaking to our friends at Ramah. This is their last Shabbat, and in some way, to us, you know, uh, in both sentimental and quite real ways, Ramah represents a certain ideal. Why? Because you have several micro communities within one one you know structure. Uh, there are communities divided by age. At least in Ramah and the Berkshires, there were there were and maybe still are. I don't know. You know, different formats, different different ways to experiment congregating on a Shabbat. There were, you know, we had uh, for Tefillah Shlema. You know, sometimes there was you know Yal non egalitarianism, etc. Um, but but there was the overriding um, structure was. It's one camp, one community. Everybody comes together. Everybody comes together to break bread. Everybody comes together in different environments to share Torah, to to you know have activities, to do stuff, you know. And, and in some way, because it's the ideal, you know, uh, out, outside of the 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 normative family structure, community structure, it, it kind of works. You know, it does it does collapse at the end of seven or eight weeks. Um, but it, it, there is a certain utopia in there that it balances factionalism or the potential for factionalism with communitarianism. In other words, I, I don't have I, I, it. It certainly would have been possible for any one of us or anyone at camp to say, "Listen, I like to have a minion this morning uh, with uh, that we're going to do with yoga." At this minion, we'll we'll recite you know Kriyachma and whatever, but this will be our minion, or we'll we'll do it this way. I think I think that there are boundaries. I think we we're still at the music boundary uh, at camp, but um, but the idea that you could have many many different groups, but under one you know uh, framework, I think I think works there. I don't know. What do you think? That was our experience. And I. I I do think that's true, and to me that is something like, you know, an ideal shul because it you have an investment in each other's presence. And when things get really bad, as might be the case in the United States right now vis-a-vis -vis the former president, as might be the case right now in Israel vis-a-vis -vis the the judicial reform or or coup or you know, whatever language it is that you want to use it, we don't often enough have a sense of like, I really do appreciate that I share this society with you. Um, in, instead, people at some level say, I wish you would just go disappear. I'd be much happier if you weren't here. And that's not the way to go. I feel like, um, you know, what's what's an ideal shul? I mean, this is, it's not ideal in other respects, but this would be a, a special thing, is if you had a great big building and there was, you know, Orthodox, conservative, reform, yoga, whatever, and then everyone had kiddish together. Well, like that, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. And, you know, there are, 
there are smaller communities that have these campus, you know, you know, the, the different synagogues, like I think Raleigh or North, one of them in North Carolina has that. Um, and that, you know, look, there, there are all sorts of times. We have a, a kaffa every year with our Orthodox, uh, you know, friends down the block. You know, it's, it's, it's symbolic in some ways that we can at least share a street together. You know, when you have common communal institutions uh, that you share together, you fund together, that you organize together, and that you, um, you know, you work for, it's more likely to happen. But, but you know, we are factionalizing ourselves to oblivion in some ways. This, you know, the rabbis didn't see this as a, as a, as a, as a plus. They don't, they want, they, they, they want you not to form factions in some way. And yet, let's just say the rabbis understood factions because rabbinic Judaism grew out of factions, right? Rabbinic Judaism, the Dead Sea sect and the Essenes and the, you know, the, the, uh, the Sadukim and the Baitusim, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the, and the followers of Irving. <laughs> We didn't leave any any texts. <laughs> there were plenty the, of factions. The followers of that other guy who left some texts. Who left some texts? <laughs> a faction. All right. Well, the the the, the rest of the rest of the parsha deals with all sorts of things that are related to us through kashrut, through the holiday cycles, parshat re'ei. Um, Let's finish with joy. Lots of simcha in this parsha. We didn't talk to it, about it before, but but. The mitzvah of being happy and rejoicing and doing things to rejoice. You know, that's that's how you come together, right? Right, indeed. It's all about the joy. You so it's worth pointing out here that there is something perhaps of a, something of an anomaly in being commanded to be happy. Yeah. And I think it's also it's important because this specific command comes with the holiday of Sukkot which originally was a great harvest holiday. And while we think of the harvest as a time of great joy, it's also a time of anxiety. Because once the harvest is in, all a farmer can do is think about the next year. And the peculiar problem of Eretz Yisrael is the rain is going to precede the agricultural season, the planting season. And so you know before you plant already what kind of year you're going to have. And it's to be quite unsettling. And the Torah reminds us that you have to persevere, you have to be happy, and you have to you know, seize the moment, to use the Latin phrase, carpe diem, to seize the day, but you need to create your own reality because sometimes, again, you know, it's more aspiration than inspiration. Can you flick a switch in a person and say to them? No, no. You, you can't flip a switch, but I think what Barry said is, is really important and by the way this is like a major theme in the last section of heschel's man is not alone it's like the religious you, you can't flip a switch but you can cultivate a personality and you can say to people you know the living is a blessing and you should you should try to cultivate gratitude and celebration and yes it can be hard and yes it can produce since we're jewish you can say massive amounts of anxiety and depression and uh, and that's that's certainly true. But if you if you, you can look at the world and say, man, I'm just I'm lucky to be alive. I'm glad to be I'm glad to be here. And that's that that like attitude of gratitude 
yeah. is is the just it's the premise on which religious life lives. I would so say people, you mentioned man is not alone. I think this is the one that has one of the great last lines of all books that for a pious person it is a privilege to die. And it's such a striking way of looking at life because I think most of us see ourselves afraid of death. And yet here, you know, we're told to choose between the blessing and the curse, which later will be the choice between life and death. And even though we're supposed to choose life, you know, at least in the abstract, death hovers in the background. Well, that's that's a joyful note to, to leave on. <laughs> but but I think people should meditate on that as they think about this partial over Shabbat. In the meantime, I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we hope to join you again on another edition of Parsha Dark, which will come to you, God willing, in another seven days. So from all of us, Shabbat Shalom.